to episode 176 of the Win6 podcast. I'm your host, Adam McGee, and joining me on this occasion, as he has done the last few occasions, it's Jordan Tresky. Hello there, Jordan. Hello. How are you doing? We've had a, we had a rough one on Wednesday night, but we have a bit of time to kind of let that settle in. There's there's probably going to be some anger, some frustration in this. Uh, there's no probably about it. There is going to be. It's what most of the podcast is going to be. But I feel like we may be able to talk about it in you know, a less world-weary tone than we necessarily did in our last podcast. Yes, and maybe some of my lobbying to alter my voice to Not make happening. things... Not okay. It, it, it would get... Jordan made... Something of a proposal to me the other day that, you know, on the, on the podcast where we have to talk negative, how about we digitally... It's not, it's not negative, uh, it's Bailey Kim. Well, it, the, you originally said negative, but you've turned it to that, so on the podcast where we have to neg- talk with the coach, <laughs> how about I digitally alter my voice? And get a little bit annoying, Jordan. We do that, we have to do that quite a lot, so... The joke may wear off pretty quickly, so we're gonna just let your voice live on in its own, its own natural qualities, Jordan. Okay. On this particular occasion, we are of course gonna get to all of your mailbag questions. It's been a little while because we had no mailbag pod last week. We'll also briefly talk about, I guess, something that crosses over between the books and the Wisconsin herd, that being the signing of Marshall Plumley. And I'm, I have to apologize to Mr. Plumley because he was going to be the star of this particular episode. This was going to be, I had, I had a title planned out. Uh, I can't remember exactly now, but I had a Plumley related title planned out for the episode. And then Jason Kidd said some things and everyone else started talking about the things Jason Kidd said, uh, including myself. And, you know, I felt there's nothing else really that we can we can do but dive into some of this stuff. On Wednesday night, the books lost to Miami Heat for the second time in about five days. They weren't blown out on this occasion. In fact, they played pretty well for a lot of the game. Led going into the fourth quarter. You felt like, okay, this one's there for them. They even had their lead kind of stretch out on a couple of occasions where you went, okay, they're going to go and kill this game off. Never did. And then in the fourth, the offense just fell apart. The Heat managed to pull away and win. After the game, Jason Kidd came out and said some pretty interesting things in his post-game press conference. They relate specifically to that game, but I think they'll be easily applied to the bigger picture. A lot of the discussions we've had 
of late last year or as far back as two years ago I would imagine on this podcast and so to start us off before we get into some of the things he said and kind of give our thoughts on the ideas he's putting out there let's make sure you've all heard exactly what we're talking about let's take a listen to Jason Kidd's post-game press conference after Wednesday's loss to the Miami Heat. I thought um, there in that first half we moved the ball, uh, we made plays for one another. Um, fast forward to the to the fourth, uh, the ball just stuck, and whoever had it was going to take it upon themselves to score. And you're not going to win in this league. We're not good enough to do that yet. And so uh, you know, this has happened before, and we we we've, we haven't won a game playing that way. So. Uh, when we start to trust and, and move the ball and get open shots, that's when we're at our best. And uh, in that fourth quarter is a great example of us just being selfish and, and playing um, bad basketball. You mentioned that we have seen that before. Is that is there a way to get your team to kind of break out of that pattern of when things start to get tough, just being selfish and not moving the basketball? Yeah, you know, I think uh, when you, you know, become 25 or, you know, in the 28 range, you, you, you tend to think about the game. We're talking about kids that are thinking about trying to put the ball in the basket. And uh, they all believe they can do it. And until we can think about being a team and making a play and being unselfish, you know, good things happen. We've seen it. And uh, when we're unselfish, good things happen. When we're selfish, we're as bad as anybody in the league. And that's what happens. And um, there's no no coaching. There's nothing that you can do but go through it and learn. And we can keep telling them what's coming as a coach, and we can tell them what to do. But it's a final. The final is up to them to make that decision. And right now, we have a hard time doing that. Okay, Jordan. So let's let's first start off. I'm gonna get back to the whole the age part of this in a moment. But let's start off with where Jason Kidd finished up on that quote. Um, when we're selfish, we're as bad as anybody in the league, and that's what happens. There's no coaching. There's nothing that you can do but go through it and learn. We keep telling them what's coming as a coach, and we can tell them what to do, but the final is up to them to make that decision, and right now we have a hard time doing that. I mean, what he's referring to is in the fourth quarter, the offense became completely stagnant. The ball stopped moving. Players stopped moving. There was a lot of isolation, and considering multiple guys who were on the floor were having a tough time in the night. Malcolm Brogdon struggled, Eric Bledsoe really struggled. Yanis even wasn't all that efficient for the field. That wasn't going to be a great recipe for success. This is a trend, though, that is now going kind of back quite a while. It wasn't always a staple of what the books did, but certainly since Derek Bledsoe trade, we've started to see it more and more. Over the last month, it's been even more prevalent. It's not just a once-off thing that happened there. What's your feeling on kids opinion of that situation kids kind of well i guess lack of a solution for how you deal with that where where do you sit with what he's saying there um well i mean so it's just painfully obvious in how much of a lack of awareness it shows and just the fact that it's Passing all the blame on players. And yes, they are the ones that play the game. And they're very comfortable in this situation. I mean, the fact that it dried up the way it did and there isn't this ball movement. But it's it's intertwined with how the Bucks run their offense. And how they've been terrible in fourth quarters. And have had great clutch time success to make up for that uh, fact. Um, and look, I mean... <laughs> 
as much as we have talked about the defense for a better part of two, three years now, the offense, as they have gotten better in terms of offensive offensive efficiency, there are times where their offense looks horrible, that they can't generate any real... I think, I think it always looks horrible. I, I think that's the thing that's maybe overlooked now is just that they've got to a level where their players are good enough that they do score, and they score with great regularity, but it's rarely a result of excellent offense, right? It's it's kind of like yeah. we're not seeing free-flowing offense. We're seeing the books score in spite of that because they've got Giannis and they've got Bledsoe and Middleton and Brogdon. Like, I, th- I think that's kind of important in noting. They're, we can call them a good offensive team because they're top 10 in offensive rating. I think it's better to say, you know, they're a team that have a lot of players who are really skilled when it comes to scoring so that even when the offense breaks down, they're finding ways to come true and score still. Yeah, and as, as Kevin Arnovitz of ESPN famously uh, said, I think this is last year, maybe in lead-up to the playoffs, somewhere around there, late last year, he described it as provisional. Um, it's just very much, there isn't anything behind it. It's it's kind of more feel and flow than anything, playing off of each other where it's relying on kind of just, I don't know, connecting with teammates, all that stuff, and building it on the court, not necessarily what is, uh, you know, this kind of distinct principled offense that you've seen around the league, whether it's like the Spurs, Warriors, or Rockets, who name it. There isn't there isn't that kind of cohesion there up and down the roster uh, for the Bucks for quite some time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just <laughs> it's very strange just to see it's not strange because I mean we've painfully gotten too used to this at this point of just see, passing the blame, passing the buck down onto the players when it reflects on Jason Kidd's job, it reflects on the coaching staff's job, it reflects on the organization's job because it's again that's not it's not just about the players, it's not just about the coaches. Bucks have pretty big hole in their bench right now, and the fact that that you see like a, to- a game from Tony Stout where his effect on the game in the first half was so evident that it actually made the Bucks look like they had a competent bench for the first time in some time. Um, it's just, yeah, it's pretty, pretty rough. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe I'll start there before going to some of the, the specifics of the quote. I mean, to kind of wash your hands clean of that as the coach when the group you had out there featured lots of players who weren't necessarily having the best nights, and yet you had... Tony Snell and Matthew Delvadova, who were a combined six of seven from three on the night sitting on the bench, and two guys that kind of force you to move the ball a little bit more. But I mean, Delhi does it. Delhi will literally take the ball in his hands and move it. He's one of probably the only guy on the team that you can be guaranteed when he comes in, he's going to move the ball. And I think in a, in a large part, that's even due to his own limitations and him understanding them that he knows, okay, there's times where I just have to pass up the ball and keep it moving. But even someone like Snell, Snell kind of promotes that if you have Snell out there and he's shooting the ball really well. Like, there's only so much you can do is kind of what Kidd is seeming to put across here. But no, there isn't. You can say, okay, we're running a play for Tony here. Tony's hot. We're going to run this play. We're going to move the ball to find Tony. And if we can't find him where we want to, we're going to keep moving on until we find an open man. And I think... Maybe there's an element of at times, and this sounds 
sounds hard to believe because it doesn't always reflect that way, but there there's possibly times later in games where the book's offense is too structured. And when I say that, I mean they're not just prepared to keep moving, you know? It's they're they're going in a certain direction. Whatever they've decided they're gonna do with that play is what they're gonna do with that play. They don't seem capable of improvising and just saying, okay, we're gonna move the ball until we find a good shot and we're gonna trust whoever it is to take that shot. And that is a fine balance because when you've got a player like Yanis, I mean, yeah, Yanis should Yanis should be the guy shooting at the end of a lot of possessions. You should be designing a lot of possessions that that's how they end up. At the same time, you've got to use the kind of pull someone like him has, the gravity that he provides, the gravity that someone like Eric Bledsoe driving. They've got a team full of great drivers. You've got to use that and kind of move the ball and take advantage of the space that opens up for other players. And yeah, there's an element of trust in that. So I, I guess in that regard, straight away, there's something he could do. I tweeted about this earlier this morning. Uh, this is the kind of stuff that really irks me most. It's not the defense. The defense is a bigger problem, but this is the kind of just blindly pushing stuff in the faces of everyone who's watching and just saying, okay, you know no better, you know? <laughs> it's like, I can't, I can't kind of take this and just go, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. You know, they're a young team, and we just have to wait. We just have to wait. When they're selfish, they're selfish, they're, they're learning. So whenever they learn not to be selfish, things will be fine. We have no idea when that will be, but, you know, things will be fine. Jason Kidd is the coach. If the team are playing selfishly, his job is to coach them out of that. If it's happening over and over again, his job is to make that one of the biggest emphasis he's going to have on a day-to-day -day basis. It's like, it's not just they have to learn to deal with that. You have to teach them. You are the coach. You're being paid incredibly well to do that. And just the constant wiping your hands of any kind of mess, you know? It's so, so irritating. He has never, correct me if I'm wrong, never taken responsibility for a book's loss with the exception of the much discussed on this particular podcast, Sucking a Mint incident, which was just completely sarcastic, completely passive-aggressive. Give me one other instance where Jason Kidd has come out and said, like, and this isn't... I, I get the response to this was off to me. Well, yeah, but who's going to come out and say it was all my fault? I mean, that's not going to do your job a whole lot of good either. I mean, you can come out and just be honest in a way and say, look... The players didn't perform to their best, but there were a couple of things that if we look back at as a coaching staff, we could have adjusted better, we'll we'll address it for the next game, we'll be better moving forward. And I don't think anyone would have an issue with that, because at least it shows some kind of degree of self-assessment, uh, self-awareness, some some kind of element of learning, you know, because you can't talk about our players have to learn. Show that you're capable of learning as well. We haven't seen it because it's always the player's fault. And it's got to a point where I feel beyond sorry for books players when this happens. Because there's no group more ready to go out and speak to the media and say, look, we blew that. We love being held accountable. You know, that's maybe gone too far. And I think that may be, of a younger group, the biggest element that they're continuing to, to accept that. Because if you look around the NBA, there's plenty of examples of locker rooms, of teams, of players who, if this kind of thing was happening over and over, they wouldn't just go out and say, oh yeah, it's on us. It's on us. We were selfish. It's on us. They'd say, yeah, well, our offense stinks. You know, there's a, their coach is not drawing up things. We're not 
well drilled enough, we're not organised in a way we're going to get better looks. So the Bucks players keep coming out and they keep taking this and in some ways that's their credit and, and in other ways it's entirely unfair. But that's the way it's being sent their way. Um, to go back to the other element that is called... Well, can, can I just interject? On, really, yeah. really... It's just a funny kind of juxtaposition where you see something like that uh, post-game and, again, just kind of recycled blame on players, whatever. Uh, you know, getting more brazen about it as the season's gone on, too, where that's just more infuriating from no matter what you think of Jason Kidd. Um, you see... Marcus Johnson has a tweet about seeing Giannis <laughs> skip post-game availability to go back in the practice facility and trying to, you know, work his frustrations from the loss and doing what he does, which is, you know, tirelessly working and all this stuff. It's just it's just a funny juxtaposition of how you see your coach, a former superstar uh, in his own right, and your the team's current superstar and face of the franchise, you know, doing what he needs to do to kind of work through losing and summing up the season so far for the Bucks. It's just kind of funny how that that picture in my mind is. I think the other element of it that's kind of just, I mean, it's not a criticism, it's not something you praise him about, it's just kind of confusing when you look at his thought process is what makes that a game where he comes out and says, those kind of things, as opposed to saying, oh, you know, we got good looks and the shots didn't fall. You know, the game was there for us, it was close, all through the fourth quarter, our offense just dried up, we couldn't get shots to fall. Because you get those can answers all the time. So, what makes this the night where you go, well, you know what, we were selfish, uh, we're as bad as anybody in the league when we're selfish, there's no coaching, there's nothing you can do, because even that, like, that's not good man management. It's what Your players hear that and they say, okay, we were selfish, and if we if we fall into that habit, if the players take that as this is a real problem we have and it's something it's going to take us time to learn through, well, what, next time that sort of starts to happen, they're going to go, okay, well, there's nothing we can do, you know? If we play like this, we're as bad as any team in the league. It's just very, very strange. Um, yep. to, to move it over to the other kind of headline element of, of his post-game press conference where he brought up the team's age again, and, I mean, this is also very much a recurring team with Jason Kidd, the quote, to remind you, is, I quote, I think when you become 25 or, or in the 28 range, you tend to think about the game. We're talking about kids. They're thinking about putting the ball in the basket, and they all believe they can do it, and until we can think about being a team and making a play and being unselfish, good things happen. We've seen it. Before we kind of open this up for discussion, Jordan, so... I think when you become a 25 or in the 28 range, you tend to think about the game. The books have an average age of 26.1. If we're to really kind of zero in and look true, players who, if, okay, players in the 25 to 28 range now are who have been true that. So players who, in theory, should be thinking about the game. I'm going to go through guys in the roster, not often playing at the moment, but just to give you a sense. We've got 40-year-old Jason Terry, 32-year-old Mertz Tladovich, 28-year-old Eric Bledsoe, 28-year-old Sean Kilpatrick, 27-year-old John Henson, 27-year-old Matthew Delvadova, 26-year-old Chris Middleton, 26-year-old Tony Snell, 25-year-old Malcolm Brogdon, 25-year-old Xavier Mumford when he's there, which... 25-year-old Marshall Plumley when he is there, 
So if we're going below that 25 to 28 range, or players who've been through that, we're talking about 23 year old Yanis Antetokounmpo. Is he the problem, Jordan? Is that is that the guy? Is he the problem? Is that really what we're getting at? And outside of that, <laughs> you've got Jabari, who's 22. Okay, is Jabari the problem when he comes back? Uh, Sterling Brown. I mean, those those 12 minutes with positive plus minus, they must be really killing the books recently. Rashad Vaughn doesn't play, DJ Wilson doesn't play, Ton Maker at 20, the youngest guy on the roster. That does not even apply, it's not even a fact. It's, it's not even a fact. It doesn't work with what he's talking about with his team. The guys on the floor in that time, the only player who was below that threshold is Giannis. So was Giannis the problem? It's like, it's completely absurd, and it's just not even true. It's just spouting words out. Not a good idea. If you've got nothing good to say, just don't say anything. Just give the canned answers. I retweeted a while ago, I'm sure a lot of books fans saw it by now, Jay King, a Boston Celtics writer, he quote-tweeted the Deadspin article on that comment with a quote from Brad Stevens, the Boston Celtics coach, and I've kind of I've gone back to find that original quote and a little bit more Stephen said. This was at the start of the season. And it was in talking about, you know, the challenges the Celtics were facing without Gordon Hayward. So the Celtics have an average age of 25.06, which is younger than the Bucks. That is the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. They also have a considerably younger starting lineup when you think Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum are their starting wing tandem and have been very successful in doing it. They're the fifth youngest team in the NBA. And when Brad Stevens was asked, just after losing his star player, about, you know, your team's very young, his response was, I quote, let's beat the age thing. Let's not talk about the age thing. Let's talk about how we can be better at what we control, at what we can control, and how we can learn and grow every day. And everybody expedite the learning curve. If we're not committed to getting better, individually and collectively, then we're not good enough. If we are, we'll see what happens. But that's the only way to go about that. This whole thing is going to kind of bring one of the buzzwords that came from an article I wrote two years ago, over two years ago, and something we talked a lot about in podcasts around that time, related to Jason Kidd, and that's accountability, right? Because there's kind of shifting all blame, all responsibility onto the players. If you listen to Stephen's quotes there, like they're real calls for accountability. You're doing two things. One, you're holding your players accountable. But two, you're also showing your players you trust in them. And you're not going to let the age thing be put there as an excuse. Because you believe you're good enough as basketball players. Like, there's been so much kind of flip-flopping back and forth on quotes made by Jason Kidd, made by ownership, made by the front office, in terms of what expectations are going to be, um, and what the team was going to want to do, to then all of a sudden we've reached the point where it's, oh, look, we're very young, we're a young, young team, and there's only so much we can do when we're young, you know, coaching, coaching, that can't do anything when the team is so young and they're learning things. It's like, it's just a complete nonsense, and this is... This is just so far beyond the breaking point for me because this is important and it's not as apparent to everyone as what you see on the court, but you've, there's got to be a version of this that players are hearing too. I'm sure players are hearing this exact version, so even if he's not telling it to them in the same way, they're going to hear, okay, what, what did coach say after the game? Oh, okay, that's what he said, that's strange. I, I just don't know what part of any of that benefits the team. 
helps the team to get better, helps them the next time they end up in that situation. And of course, I mean, the the under-discussed element of this because of the quotes, maybe this is what he was doing, maybe he just wanted to cause a distraction, which if that was the case, congratulations, it's worked. But this game, this loss, came against the Heat. Team coached by one of the best coaches in the NBA, a team with, I mean, far, far inferior roster quality than the books. And yet look at how they play. Look at how they've beaten the books twice in five days. They just are so competent. They're so consistent. They do everything fundamentally well. They make you beat them. And they'll make you beat them for 48 minutes. It's like, when you see that and you see it compared to what the books are, the Heat are in fourth place in the East at the moment. This books team is good enough to be a tree seed, at least. At least. Like, I, I think it's important that we don't lose sight of that now because we're in a place where as this goes on and as it continues to go the way it's been for the last few weeks we're gonna find ourselves a couple of months from now talking about oh well if they win this many games they'll be the sixth seed let's not lose sight of the fact that this team is good enough to be a top four team in the east now easily they're good enough and if they're not hitting that goal if they're not performing at that level well then the fault lies within i mean you've got to look at the coach, you've got to look at the players. It's it, This isn't a, oh, we're a young team. Well, is Yanis' contract going to be up? And we're going to be talking about, oh, we're a young team. You know, Yanis has just entered into that 25 to 28 range. It's like, I've had enough of it, really. Just the, the nonsense. The words that are just doing nothing but bad. They're not going to make anyone less angry in the fan base. I just don't see any way how they help the players. Yep, and months after preaching continuity, Bucks DNA, all this stuff. I mean, yeah, it's 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 grown tired to say the least. Genuine question with this: Is he out of things to say? Is the, is that why we get something like this? Is that and this may also apply to them? What he's saying within the locker room, but has it reached a point where you know? <laughs> The go-to answers have been exhausted after four years, and four years that have seen the same sort of situations crop up time and time again. Is he out of things to say, so that now when he's saying things, it's just for the sake of saying them? Because I just, there's there's a lot of it, I I don't want to read too much into it because it's difficult. I, I feel even Jason Kidd's demeanor has been very different in post-game press conferences recently. Very different. Yeah. I, yeah. I actually I... feel it's been more jovial. Oh... I, I might go the other way. If honestly. you don't believe me, well, then maybe it's a highly sarcastic. Don't believe <laughs> me. Just like observe his expressions recently. I think it's being a little bit more jovial than it has been at times in the past. I just don't know if it's reached a point where, aside from all of the other flaws, where he kind of still has that something fresh to bring to it, and whether that's in speaking to the media and the fans, or whether that's speaking to the players. I don't know. Well, we both know this. I mean, he's still learning, you know, as we read about recently. He's still learning to be an NBA coach, you know. Um, it doesn't help, by the way, when <laughs> when the official social media account is putting out pictures of Kareem and Jason Kidd, with, you know. Yep, and Charles Barkley proclaiming like... the Bucks are going to make the conference finals. Like, 
No, but you are, okay, can I, can I just interesting I, thing about that, right? Can we because again, that is that is ridiculous to us because we watch his every game. Charles Barkley is not sitting around going, Oh, what's Jason Kidd said in his press conference tonight? <laughs> but he is sitting from a place where he goes, Okay, look at the books roster. They have Giannis, they've got and you can list true, and he goes, Why can't that team be the second best team in the East? Why can't they be the third, the fourth best team of these? Like, that isn't ridiculous. But we're no. at a point where we all view that as ridiculous because of everything else that is brought to the table. It's like, if you take so many of the problems that are being imparted on the team away from that, that isn't so hilarious all of a sudden. You know, Jabari coming back and making a big, big impact and just the team being more consistent, more competent overall. Things like that wouldn't be laughing matters, but yet, here we are. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to touch on something really, really quick because I, I keep seeing this as you know the frustration builds to greater heights over Jason Kidd and just the Bucks underachieving season. I find it strange. I, we've we talked about in the past about kind of Bucks fans' fascination and then subsequent frustration of when they are covered nationally like there's only like rare few cases where everybody's like okay like we get what you're saying because you're may know what you're talking about here <laughs> that, that you paid attention to all this stuff but i find it find it strange that if you're pro if you're on the the fire kid bandwagon or if you see like the deadspin article came out today and i saw this pop up again where it's like finally we can get some national coverage talking about jason kid being fired maybe that'll uh, you know, wake up the owners to maybe do something, whether it's during the season or maybe actually, you know, doing the deed and fire him uh, after the season. And I find that very depressing because oh, it is it, just all of this is depressing. The fact that we I have to do this podcast is depressing. Yes, but I find that particular angle very depressing and distressing. That the fact that if there's national tension going against you know, the, the current team's head coach and how he should be fired or how not necessarily fired. Cause they didn't say that, but how they should, you know, what, what is actually going on here in Milwaukee? Why are the bucks the way they are despite having a top five player of the league and all this stuff. And I find that really kind of awful to see because the fact that it would be more perception based than actual performance based in that sense for them to actually kind of, you know, heed the wake up call, like that's just kind of, I don't know. That, yeah, I agree with so that. And I, I think some of the frustration that you do then see with the national coverage at the minute is that even, even actually when they do kind of drop into things, like it would be impossible if you weren't watching every single game. It would be impossible in covering this team if you if you weren't covering it like we cover it, which is every single detail to fully just understand how absurd some of this stuff is and to remember every specific instance. So you do see this frustration when a national piece comes out, even if it points to something negative where people are going, oh, but it's so much worse than that. You don't you don't even know. You don't know what it's like is basically the response from Books Twitter when something like that comes out. And the point you make of perception is interesting, and I think that might be interesting in the bigger picture of all of this too because surely that's something that's got to kind of got to kind of rankle with ownership as well because there's so much positive that has been done to change the perception of the organization to change the perception of the books pieces like those they don't help anything they don't they don't help anything like going forward they won't help anything so it's a 
It's a pretty awkward and uncomfortable spot, but... Yeah, I mean, we could be back doing all of this again next week. I will say, it feels like, you know, the leash has got to be tightening up. There's no, there's no way at this point that he's just kind of got free reign to keep doing this. They've had a pretty kind of iffy run... They're now, they're coming out of a tough spell of games, or maybe you can excuse some of those moments, and they're coming into an easier spell in the schedule. It's like, losing some of those games, that will get some attention. I kind of said it on our previous episode of podcast, I said, hey, look, Jordan, we're kind of a, a bad books week and a good Sixers week away from falling out of the playoffs. And, I mean, the way things are playing out, it's say if the Sixers could beat the Celtics tonight and then beat the Bucks on... Saturday? Saturday, right? Yeah, it is Saturday. Sixers would be half a game ahead of the books in the standings. Like, that's just how quickly this thing can turn. And then it gets very scary in a hurry. And, I mean, it gets beyond that because this team is just way too good to be in that position. Particularly seeing as you made what was a win-now trade this summer. If it wasn't a win-now, it was a win-in-the-next-18-months trade before Bledsoe hits the open market. I mean, all of this with Jabari set to come back as well. I think the under-discussed element of that is front office and ownership must want to really get a look at how, you know, how Jabari works with this team and how the team functions overall before committing money. They've had so so few opportunities to do that, even with Giannis, Chris, and Jabari. I mean, we're going back, what? 2016. 18 months to the last time the three of those players were on the court together for more than a matter of seconds. Like, that's insane. And yeah. now you also have Eric Bledsoe in the mix. And, like, Tony Snell wasn't on the roster the last time those three guys played any sort of real minutes together. Brogdon wasn't. Like, the whole thing is completely different. The next few months, I, I think there's a lot of talk about, oh, you know, the books might just want to see what they've got with Jabari before trying to trade him, or they might want to put him in the shop window. I kind of still don't think that's going to happen, but I guarantee they'll want to see what they've got with him and how it all works together before making a decision in the summer. The question is, can they get a real read on that? Can they get a real read on that with Jason Kidd as coach? It's a very, no. di- it's a very, very <laughs> difficult one. I'm inclined to agree with that. Um, tough decisions may need to be made. Like, if you're looking for... Tough decisions definitely need to be made. But they may need to be made sooner rather than later if you're looking at some of the decisions that are going to come and hit you pretty quickly. Let's briefly, before we get to the mailbag, uh, some brief respite, although I don't know I don't know if this was the cheeriest, uh, most positively received piece of news that the books universe has ever seen. The, <laughs> the deadline for two-way contracts has came and gone. The books had one open slot heading into that final day. They chose to add a big man, which in its own way is pretty interesting and maybe has gone under the radar with some actual books details. And that, you know, that could be insurance for if you don't get one of the deals that everyone seems to think they're going to make for some sort of big man. But Jordan, who would they go and get? Who would they go and get with a two-way contract? Why, only a Plumley. Marshall Plumley signed on a two-way contract had uh, most recently been with the Agricaliente Clippers in the G League. Having a solid season, not spectacular by any means. This is not the same as Xavier Munford getting a two-way contract, having completely shut the lights out in the league for a number of months. 
I'm gonna leave a lot of this one to you because you wrote the piece about this when the news broke. I feel like you've already dived a little deeper into the Marshall Plumley experience. That's a Jimi Hendrix experience cover band. And mm-hmm. you also have done some Or the Marshall Plumley project. Honoring Alan Parsons. You've also done something I haven't done yet, which is you watched the Herd's loss to the Greensboro Swarm on Wednesday, where Plumley made his debut. 14, 12 and 7, was it? Sorry? Yep. 12 yeah. and 7, okay. Uh, I guess, first of all, what do you make of the move? And secondly, what did you? What was your impression of watching Plumley play for the Herd in that game? Um, i got to be honest. I think the move was doing a move. For the sake for of For a move's sake, yeah. yeah. I, I kind of... Especially if you really think about it, there's 22 days available considering it's prorated. And he's, from what we saw from Matt Velasquez as of recording this afternoon, he's with the team Thursday afternoon, so that's one day down. Um, Right, but the other thing worth noting with this and could come into play is that's till the end of the G League season, so he could potentially be around for the playoffs at the books. I think I saw something that they're not eligible to play. I could be wrong about that, but okay, okay, I'll trust yeah, you on that one. Manta. Um. Anyway, I yeah, I just thought it, it was more of a security blanket type move, just in case to someone if there may be a knock, knock on wood, uh, for either John Henson or uh, Thon. Um, and yeah, I think a lot of people reacted to seeing a Plumley and Bucks and had you know instant nightmares of summer 2016 and just kind of responded kind of rightly so I, I just think it was just kind of an uninspired move he's a f- okay basketball player he's he was he did pretty well with the knicks last year he actually i forgot that he was even on the knicks i thought he was it was like more of like a day, 10 day contract or from coming from their affiliate if but i remember actually, correctly and i haven't done any more research you might notice he was about to go and join the military just before the knicks signed them he was he's Still with the military, but it's some... Well, he may have been about the... to like actually go out for some form of active service. I remember there being an article yeah. right around the time the Knicks decided to sign him. But he was very, very close to kind of taking up active service in the military at the time. And the Knicks signed him and like, kind of postponed that at least. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think he's with a reserve unit, although I'm not 100% clear on that yet. But uh, in terms of his what he did, his debut came off the bench. The other thing, the other problem about this too, Hurt have too many big men now that they can't play them all at the same time. Like they have Joel Ballenboy, Cliff Alexander, Plumley, Michael Dunnigan still hurt. Cameron Oliver is kind of a pseudo hybrid four or five, and his playing time has been cut over the last couple games. From my memory, um, they just have a lot of. There's a big imbalance on the roster, especially couple that with James Young getting picked up by the Sixers. They just have too many big men, not kind of, a good amount of guards, and just kind of no wings. And it's kind of a strange mix uh, now and how they kind of go about that. Anyway, his debut was fine. Came off the bench, played like 22 minutes, scored 12 points on like four or five. Went made to the line. Shot four or five there, seven rebounds. Otherwise, it's kind of a, just a black game. They lost. The score was much more flattering for them when they were down by like thirty-three at <laughs> the, the, the start of the fourth. So, yeah, just kind of, it was, yeah, eh. 
uh, a couple ant days when it came to the edition of Martian Public. I don't, I don't really understand why they just didn't give Cliff Alexander that deal if they want a big man cover and like I mean Alexander has been doing better in the G League this season. It's kind of kind of a weird one I, and we did talk about this on a recent episode and I kind of I kind of stated my preference for a wing anyway, assuming the books were going to look at center options, whether through kind of buyouts or free agents or the trades, you know, and instead they've gone for a deal that is going to leave the herd very, very shorthanded on the wing. I mean, Shannon Brown started on the wing last night, right? Yeah, he has started the last two games or three, if I remember correctly from uh, what happened at the showcase. And Chris McCullough got called back from the Wizards, so they're very, uh, very um, thin at the, you so, know. It's only really wings. Jarvis Summers, Aaron Harris, who they just signed. Aaron Harris. Kyle Casey's a four, I mean, really, but that's it in terms of forwards. Brian Williams. He's a guard. I mean, they're going to be certainly playing three guards a lot of the time. Um, or multiple centers, probably even more likely. It's a weird, I, I don't know, it's a weird kind of way they've done that. I'm not sure what Plumlee's going to do to benefit the books, and I really don't see how that particular choice is going to benefit the herd either. So, yeah, pretty pretty unusual. And do, you, do you see him getting any sort of run with the books? What's a, What sort of Plumlee is he? Is he more Mason or Miles? <laughs> uh, he might be actually, since he's younger, I think the youngest, he might be a combination of both. He's not really – I believe he has a shorter wingspan than his actual height, if I remember correctly. Oh, that's never good. Never uh, good. That's, that really is never good. But what I was trying to get at there is, is he more Mason-like? Are we going to see are, – are we going to see Marshall putting up triple doubles? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Can he pass? He had an assist last night. One He's assist. Out from. Wow. Uh, it really is exciting. I, yeah. I mean, Tana is struggling, really, really struggling, and it's like games. Like, imagine if they end up in a playoff series with the Heat. I'm watching books against the Sam Whiteside for potentially seven games. Ugh. I mean, it's not just the Heat. That could be the Pistons. It could be, it could be the it, Wizards. They've done well somehow. The last two against the Wizards, they've actually yeah. pounded the Wizards on the on the boards, which is a very bizarre turn of fortunes, but. Is there is there a chance that he'll get some minutes because of the struggles we're seeing elsewhere? I mean, I don't, th- I, I really don't think so. But <sighs> who knows? We saw the Gary Payton two experience. I I tweeted this out the day of the signing after the last Wizards Bucks game. Gary Payton two only played one hundred six minutes with the Bucks, but. Good God, did that feel much longer than 106 minutes? <laughs> See, it was, um, he was coming out of those games super quick. It was just the fact he was starting them that was really, I mean, causing a lot of thought to go into it. Let's let's move it on, Jordan. Let's get on to the mailbag. Uh, the first question from David on 21. My question of the week. You've argued compellingly over the months and years that firing Jason Kidd midseason won't help because of assistant coach continuity. But what if Prunty's rotations are 10% better and his adjustments are 10% better and he doesn't run Giannis into the ground or treat Chris like he's Kobe and the team gets the standard bump that comes from a new voice and Jabari comes back and the team gets momentum? It's worth it, right? 
I, I just think it's going to make no difference. It doesn't mean you don't fire a kid mid-season. I think just the point I've always been at pains to kind of make is it's just not going to make a difference. Really. Um, it's not a new voice. I think that's no. important. It's one of the exact same voices. Again, this is a guy who literally holds the clipboard. It's a guy who draws up plays. I don't know. I really, I just see no point to it. I think expecting different results from Joe Prunty. Prunty kind of gets away with his share of blame. Like, look, we were talking to start this one off about a game where their offense was stagnant, they fell apart. Prunty's the offensive guy. So I feel if we were talking about, oh, Sean Sweeney should be in, should be interim coach, there'd be more kind of backlash against that because he's been a more public figure for, like, what the defense has become. And him yelling at Giannis. Right, that too. Wow, that was strange. I'd almost forgotten about that. Pronti, though, I mean, it's the same thing. It Again, if, I mean, firing Jason Kidd, if that's something that needs to be done, which it really feels like it is, you don't not do it because of that. But my point has just always been, don't expect anything other than a lost season in doing that. And you know what? Maybe that's okay. Maybe that's worth it because you're looking at, okay, we've got to sort this out and we've got to get there next year. The books do also have this... You know, the whole situation with their pick as well. And the protections around that, that that could become very, very relevant over the coming months if they want to keep their first round draft pick. I just don't think anything different, anything better. I think 10% better rotations, 10% better on adjustments from Prunty. I would be asking a lot. Yeah, I, I agree with that. The next one from at Articulo underscore 34. How can Jason Kidd look so awful on press conferences day after day? Could it be some kind of strategy or just pure incompetence? On first case, is that strategy really wordy? It is not also incompetence to do it that way. Um, I'm not entirely sure on the second part. The, how does he look so awful on press conferences day to day? I, I don't understand. I don't really know. Maybe, maybe as Jordan said, he's just learning. As was he was kind of defended in an article um, in the not-so-distant past. It's very <laughs> it's very strange. It's very, very strange. I, I, think, I think there's a chance he has a kind of player's suspicion of the media. He's never necessarily lost that suspicion that players often have of the media. And I think as a coach, there are times where you just have to give a little bit more. You've got to be a little bit more honest. And... Gotta give a little more energy and effort in those post-game conferences. I mean, that's... Well, I think in any sport, the thing I always think of, and I, I don't know if it's lost on some coaches, when you do those press conferences, they may be in a room where they're looking at media members and they're thinking this media member is asking me this specific question. That's also your avenue to speak to your fans. You know, you're, you're really... The media are there representing your fan base. So... It's really important that you just you take that pretty seriously and you give when it's appropriate to give something. Obviously, you're not going to give away your game plan. No one wants you to give away the inner workings of everything that's going on. But I think there are times where it's just important to just kind of face up, front up to things and let people know, that, okay, well, that didn't go that well, but we understand why that was the issue. We're going to work on it players didn't do this right as a coaching staff we could have done this better to help them we learn and we move on i think it's part of the biggest problem with kid is that everything is you know the players have to learn the players have to learn 
I mean, I, I don't think you'd hear Greg Popovich talk as often about his players have to learn without saying, oh, you know, there's something there that I could have done better. It's it's a very, very strange thing. You know what he said about LaMarcus Aldridge last week? I can't really think of another coach in the NBA who just deals with press conferences in that manner. So it's it's a very tough one to answer. I, I don't think it's pure incompetence. I just think it's there's like a suspicious way of viewing the media. And you see this with some players. I think we got to remember, this is a former player and very recently, in relative terms, a former player. As we talked about before, maybe not having the assistant coaching experience, the even the media experience that a lot of ex-players get before making these kind of jumps has held them back in some ways. This may be another way. I think Kid could really have done with a year like on NBA TV to learn how to, I don't know, smile and just be a little bit more open and pleasant coming across and things, you know, to almost get a little bit more TV friendly. That's part of your job if you're a coach, you know? Even, like, someone like Popovich, again, who's famous for being blunt and direct, he knows how to work that situation, and he knows what he has to get across, and when he, when the time is right for him and the time is right for his team, that he goes and says something more, he'll go and do it. I just don't feel like Kid has got that figured out. No, and I don't expect him to. Right. <laughs> I'd agree with that. From at Justin Superbook, we have a few questions from Justin here. What is the key for the books to be a consistent team? I mean, find a, a consistent offensive strategy, defensive strategy, find some sort of consistent rotation. They've just got to generally add more consistent patterns to what they're doing. It's like you can't get consistent results if the process that's being put out there to get them is wildly inconsistent. I think that's where we're at with the books. Yeah, not have things, uh, not have success be born out of accidents and just throwing things wildly uh, to the wall. <laughs> that's I think that that's probably a good start. You know what I mean? Are you more worried when the books play good teams or bad teams? This is a big thing among books, Twitter, and like it now goes into Chris Middleton's performance against good teams, Chris Middleton's performance against bad teams. Obviously, I think, and we've talked about it before, the books have a habit of playing up to their opponents and playing down to their, their opponents, too. Am I more worried when they play one or the other? Right now, I'm worried every time there's a books game. <laughs> it's it, Really, there's no... The opponent doesn't matter. It's like the books can put in the best or the worst performance against any team in the league. Good Sometimes in the same game. <laughs> That's very true. I mean, I don't feel what we're seeing at the moment is just good or bad teams. We're just seeing the books be wildly inconsistent in their levels. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't I don't really... Uh, I don't have... It's not... Yeah, the, the Warriors I, I, game was a good example of that. They played really well for parts of that. They go into the, the fourth quarter with a lead and then they get blown out. <laughs> it's like... It's like, okay, well, there you've got playing good against a good team, playing bad against a good team. The game before that was the Magic, and before that was the Pacers game, right? Where, yep. I mean, mediocre team, maybe, and they play just about as bad as you can play. It's just, it's it's really a concern just what you're going to get from game to game, regardless of who the opponent is. Yep. Who would the ideal matchup in the playoffs be? Who would our least ideal matchup in the playoffs be? I'd take a playoff matchup. That's what I'd take. <laughs> again i'm not being 
I, I, I am kind of catching up. I was behind some stuff because I, I was away last week. Uh, I was catching up on low post yesterday and, and some other things today. The Jeff Van Gundy low post, I thought was interesting because Van Gundy really puts the books as one of the teams he sees as most dangerous in the East. And I, I fully think that still applies. Like, the way things are shaping up at the moment, the books aren't going to get all of their issues ironed out, probably to give them the kind of regular season we all hoped for. And so the focus has got to be, okay, well, let's get into the playoffs and then reset, you know? We've started off, we've got seven games, let's see what we can do. If you can get through those seven games, you've got another seven games. And, like, the books have the the books have the players to go up against any team. They really do. They can, definitely in the East, even the better teams, what I expect them to lose to Boston, Cleveland, Toronto right now. I mean, I, I can't right now think that the books would beat the Raptors over seven games, although they should. Yeah, I'd expect them to lose those teams, but have they got the talent to beat them if they just click into gear for like one week, ten days? Absolutely. I mean, I don't. My my ideal matchup is the war is the Wizards. I said Warriors. I mean, that would be. I don't be <laughs> ideal for the mood there. It would be ideal in terms of you know they'd be in the finals, so that'd be great. Uh, the Wizards, just because we've talked about the Wizards, kind of mindset equally hot and cold. mindset um their difficulties there plus the books have now won two consecutive games against them playing well so i guess that looks kind of like you know, that might be okay um least ideal matchup i don't know i feel playing lebron, LeBron in the playoffs <laughs> is bad i think of out of teams taking the top teams out of it that are probably more obvious uh, the Heat are one that I think at this point we should all be saying, okay, that would not be a fun playoff series for the books because that'd be a team they really should be beating and also a team that could probably go out and sweep the books. <laughs> like, they they just expose everything Milwaukee does badly. What do you think Jabari will be averaging by end of the year is Justin's last question. It's, it's really impossible to know. I mean, we have no way of knowing what version of Jabari comes back. And honestly, if he's just healthy end of year and showing signs of improving month to month, I'd be more than happy with that. Um, and the, the other thing with Jabari and his averages and considering he's, again, he's coming into a team with Eric Bledsoe now and Brogdon has his role. His minutes, his touches, his opportunities are probably less than what he had in the past, even kind of putting aside any potential minutes restrictions early on and any just normal teething pains that come with his recovery and getting back to full basketball strength. So I I honestly don't know. I it's hard to know what minutes he'll get. It's hard to know what his role is gonna be. There's a lot of questions that will be have to be answered when Jabari comes back into the rotation. Yeah, I fully expect him to either play like eighteen minutes a game as he, you know, gets back into shape and trying to, you know, back from injury or I could see him playing 30 minutes in his like seventh game back. Like, I don't know. Like there's just, I, I yeah, it's making me a little nervous just because that's another oh, thing. That, we don't need to worry about that. I mean, well, just, no, no, please, it's not no, no, I know, but please basketball gods don't do that to us again, but it's just, I, don't do it. You to never Jabari, but just don't. I honestly, with everything else going on, if you're to tell me, Oh, we're like, we're going to have to go through that again. They're real low points. I've read the last emergency podcast, I remember it well. That is not fun. Um, 
So just, yeah, be careful with them is really the most important thing, first of all. But I, I don't I don't know. I really don't know what to expect. Um, from at Alex underscore Koenig 023, do you think Middleton is focusing too much on the offensive end and that's leading to him being a diminished defender, at least compared to what we're accustomed to seeing out of him? Uh, this is this is a good question because I think there's a lot of interesting things worth discussing here. I think Middleton looks a lesser defender because he's spending exponentially more time guarding the four than he's ever spent in his career. This is a guy who used to be known as one of the best 3 and D defenders in the league. And at that time, he was often pl- playing the shooting guard. Yeah. He's, he's now spending long spells at the four, either when Yana sits or in small ball lineups with Yana's at the five. He himself has talked about, you know, that's a real challenge and that's a kind of wear on his body. Um, in spite of whatever mindless nonsense Jason Kidd has put out there, he is playing minutes that aren't necessarily in line with the minutes he's played throughout his career. So he's carrying more minutes, playing at a position that's more physically taxing on him. And I think all of that's coming together just to make the challenge much greater for him on both ends. I think in a lot of ways, okay, he's not doing the things that we'd like him to do in some departments. He deserves credit for scoring at the rate he's scoring, considering the extra things he's taken on this year, that you know, maybe he shouldn't be asked to take on. I think that might be the most important thing here. When we talked about the books going small, as, as we have for kind of a couple of years and the idea of them doing that, I mean, the ideal was not that Chris Middleton played a lot of minutes at the four. Maybe in bursts with a Yanis at the five lineup, but when you're playing a traditional center, there was no real, there was no real plan of oh well you'd put Middleton at the four. That's not great for him. He's a tall guy; he can get away with it, but he's also got quite a thin physique, and he's really I I think he's really being tested to his limits. He has to be physically, because. They're just asking so, so much. I believe he's now past Giannis in minutes per game. I think he's now the leader in the NBA. Because <laughs> the la- last few games he has um, he has played more. Let me just quickly double check that. No, he hasn't, but he is back up to second. So Giannis leads the NBA minutes per game at 37.4. Middleton is second at 37.2. <laughs> it's really farcical. I mean, think of all the other things we just talked about in regard to Jason Kidd. And he, he's playing two of his most important players as number one and two in the NBA minutes per game. And people want to know, why is why is Chris Middleton not as good as Chris Middleton's looked in years past? Why is he not doesn't look like the same player? Well, second in the league in minutes per game and being asked to defend power forwards. And being asked to, you know, lead offices of units that aren't very... Uh, uh, don't have a lot of creators on the floor. Where it's, I mean, all, where it's all him. I mean, it's the the only way of putting it. He's being asked to single-handedly run a lot of the groups that he's in. It's not exactly something that's kind of conductive to really, really great play. Yeah. Uh, even kind of just zooming out and looking a little bit further down the rankings. I mean, top 100 in the NBA minutes per game, you're not just going to have those two, but you're going to have... Bledsoe Brogdon and Tony Snell as well. So there is a lot of books carrying pretty significant minutes. That's what happens if your bench is kind of weak. It's also what happens though if you just don't manage your rotations all that well. So I I mean I I think the power forward thing is probably 
a little bit undersold. But let's not, again, let kind of the kids saying, oh, he's been used to playing minutes like that. Let's not allow that to slide. That is not true. It's not true. I feel like I'm talking about a completely different sort of thing where we have to just call out falsehoods that are patently false and being painted as fact. But here we are. Uh, that's something the books coach has said recently. That just isn't really true. Go look at the numbers. I mean, he's right there with the most he's played in his career. And that only happened in one year. As we pointed out, the year after that, he ended up with his hamstring injury. That season itself was a really bad one for the books. It's like, the trends aren't good for when he plays those kind of minutes. Don't mind having to guard fours as well. For our pencil 2292, would you trade for Lou Will slash make a play for him in the offseason? Um, the Clippers are as much, if not more, a playoff team than the books right now, so I don't even have any idea of what the price would be for Lou Williams. Um... Make a play from the offseason? Is he is he a free agent? Even I think he, so. I mean, he's going to get paid more than the books could ever dream of paying him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's showing this I year, mean, why... Like, he can still is, do the things he's best at. Why is talent, talent... As we talked about, talent is not the problem here. It's not. Don't have to add more talent to try to solve your problems, because that's what they did two months ago, and it's nothing has really changed. Well, I mean, some things have changed. They've got better in areas where they weren't as good before, but the results overall don't change, which points to, yeah, that wasn't the problem to begin with. It means maybe if you can deal with the other issue, you end up in a place where you're so much better than you could ever have imagined being. But, it's like trying to put on two left-footed shoes. It's like, why you know... It's like, I, I, think I like way, my shoes the way they are. It's, it's like analogy. it really was a bad one. It, it's it's more like just skipping a step. It's like you're trying to solve kind of a problem that's three problems down the road before you take care of the one that's right in front of you. Like when you go to the grocery store and you're like, you know what? I want to go right by the cashier. It's like, oh no, I got to go back and more to get more. I don't know what I'm talking about here. It's like you go to the grocery store, you fill up your trolley with, with your groceries, right? Yeah. And. Then you walk right by the cashier, right through the door, and the security guy comes, hauls you off, you end up arrested, and you're like, oh, but yeah, I was going to pay later. Yeah. Pay now. It's good advice for all of you. Pay now, then you can worry about getting the groceries to your car. <laughs> we got there, Jordan. You, yeah. did, you, you, you got the grocery thing out there, and I, I saved a little bit. From at MKE, Madison even. When will the books finally hashtag fire kid? I don't know. Soon might be the response to that. May 7th, 2018. <laughs> sorry. Was, oh 2017. That would have been. That would have been much better. <laughs> that would have been. Was that the date his contract was extended? Um. Oh, from a DB... It might have been two years ago. Oh my god. <laughs> from a DB Sweeney underscore 2016. Let's say Jabari comes back and before the end of the season he looks like Jabari of, of last year before the injury and magically knew he wouldn't have any more injuries. That would be magic. Uh, if you could choose three out of the four guys between Yanis, Bledsoe, Chris and Jabari, who would you pick to build around or possibly keep to use as trade piece to get a bigger star next to Yanis? If you could pick any player in the league to pair with Yanis in the books, who would it be? Um... For the first part, I, I don't know. I, just, I mean, for the moment, I 
I'd like to keep all four. I think you should at least have, be able to get a season out of that. Like, if they decide to do that, and then it would be difficult, but... I don't know, because, again, we just... We don't know what any of that looks like. Yeah. What, what does this version of Yanis look like with Jabari? Think of what Yanis was last time Jabari was on the floor. Think of what Yanis was the last time he was on the floor with Jabari and Chris for any sort of time. Yeah. Like... It was that Sixers game that ruined our... <laughs> oh, you're right. It probably was that Sixers game. I mean, we don't know. And now we've got Eric Bledsoe in the mix. It's very hard to make decisions like that. Like, the next few months will be important from that perspective, if nothing else. Um, if you could pick any player in the league to pair with Giannis on the books, who would it be? Kelly Olenek. Jordan. <laughs> Jordan. <laughs> I don't know. I actually... This, uh, this, I think... I think Steph. I think Steph Curry. I hear he's pretty good. I just think a shooter like that <laughs> at the point guard spot, that might work kind of well with Giannis. Yeah. Wasn't my don't, first, give them the, wasn't don't give them any instinct. ideas, please. <laughs> oh, God. Wasn't my first, uh, my first instinct, but I think that might just be pretty tough to stop. Yeah, close your ears, please, Golden State people. From at College Session, what's Jason Kidd's aversion to getting Yanis the ball? Are you, or do you think he demands for the ball enough? I don't think it should be a situation where he's demanding for the ball. Um, I don't think demanding for the ball is going to result in fluid ball movement like the team clearly lacked the other night. Yanis didn't touch the ball anywhere near enough down the stretch, but I think we can expand that and say uh, Tony Snell should have been in that game late on. Delhi probably should have been that game late on. Particularly as you could see things weren't rolling with that group that were in there. You had kind of multiple of your key guys who were really struggling on the night. It was one of those where you should probably just try something different. Let's just throw it out there. Let's try two guys who've actually played well tonight. Um, I mean, particularly Snell, because Snell really belongs in that group. Let's not forget that. Um, but I don't know. They're not I, doing right by Tony. They aren't. They're not Tony. Poor Tony. That that Laurie Nickel piece was really. I mean, that broke my heart. The opening to that piece. Sorry about Tony Snell's heart being broken by those phones. Me reading about Tony Snell and those phones broke my heart, Jordan. Techie Tony. From David Dunn twenty one. I will loan you my time machine to pursue any of the off season trades suggested by. I forget who. Doesn't matter. It's it's David on twenty one is is the person he's forgot here. Do you use the time machine or do you hand me back the keys? So, David on twenty one is trying to do some sort of I told you so here. Um, would you move Middleton for a one year Paul George rental with a slim chance of retaining him? He did a poll at the time. This poll read eighty seven percent no, thirteen percent yes. Do you want to know my answer first, Jordan? You're you look deep in thought there. My answer is no. The slim chance of retaining him. So what? Have you watched what's happening right now? Because it, <laughs> yeah, it, they got it, their own problems. It would be it would be trading the Paul George for the kind of you know oh well you know the, it's a win now move. Maybe they'll win this year. They're not going to win this year. Yeah. <laughs> I think if one as day, he's singing "I Love L.A." by Randy Newman. <laughs> so if. It's one thing, you know the way Paul George talks about how he likes Oklahoma City and he's like, oh yeah. 
if Paul George was in the current kind of books thing, I'm not so sure how that one would be going. So no, I'd stick with Middleton on that one because Paul George Plus, would be I don't think next year. Paul George, he is he I, I don't know how he would react to being uh uh blamed by Coach Kidd regularly. But that's kind of what I was pointing to earlier. The books might just need someone like that, really. And um, they might need someone from the outside who just won't tolerate that because the guys who are there even the guys who should be at a level now where they don't have to take that they're just so used to it i i I honestly think that's an interesting element that you just you wouldn't see quotes like we're seeing like night in night out from kid flying in other locker rooms around the league um and he's lucky in that regard and that might be the part of them being young that should stop him from talking about how young they are because i think that's working in his favor and the other, the other trade that David done twenty one proposed back in the summer was Middleton, Brogdon, and seventeen for Jimmy Butler. That's a lot. I mean, not that seventeen became DJ Wilson. So I mean, um, yeah, I, I think having Brogdon in there as well is is a lot. What's what's Jimmy Butler's contract? He's under contract this year. And, I think and it's next the same. Year, it? So he's. Same. It's not the same as George, the same as Middleton's, right? Yeah, Middleton's. I'm not giving up all of that. I mean, I would have given Middleton and 17, which that probably would have got that deal done. Yeah. Oh, uh, uh, no, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I, I Honestly, I don't think either trade works still. Sorry, David, on 21. Um, from at... Acts three five eight. Why didn't kids set a place for Tony Snell to shoot in the second half? That that is an excellent question. I, I do want to extend that one because the the blame shouldn't be solely on kid there. The players should also be looking to find him, but kid has a role in that too. Like I mean, what do you say at halftime in that game other than Tony's the hot hand, get him the ball, you know? Yeah. Like. I, I don't know what you're saying when Bledsoe's going like two for 13 or whatever it was that he finished that. Like, how are you not saying, okay, we've got a guy over here who was just like automatic for three earlier in the game. Let's give him the ball. So I don't know. I don't know how his players didn't give him better opportunities or continue to look, set them up. And I don't know how kid just didn't ensure that the players gave better opportunities. Lastly, from at Dukes MCH over under Jabari points per game when he returns 15 question mark i'm taking the under i think don't feel under i I think under 15 for sure again roll may just not even allow him i mean if he averaged 15 per game coming in for the rest of the season i I mean you'd have to feel really really incredibly good about that i want to say he averaged 12 until the all-star break the first time he came back and then got up to like 16 or something like that by the end of the season so yeah and he was playing more minutes than he ought to, ought to, ought have. Uh, sorry. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't. 15's a lot. We have to remember there's a lot still. I'd like to kind of get in here. It's probably at the end of the podcast is the spot for it, but it's a bad idea for us to really be worried about Jabari's averages when he comes back and to measure what he can be for the team now and in the future based on what his averages are coming back from his second tour in ACL. Um, so I'd kind of... I remember the Derek Williams comparisons, everybody. Remember, that was... People were very putting the 
cart before the horse when Jabari first came back, and then that was a whole other. That was a dark three months. I think the things that Jabari should be measured by is his athleticism, how that looks compared to what he was before, and his confidence. They're the two things that I probably they're probably the only two things I care about. I mean, if he comes back and can average fifteen a game or whatever more, you go, wow, that's incredible, great. Um, but it's those two details that will tell us, you know, if the same player can still be in there or if it's not exactly the same player, just what level Jabari is going to be able to play to. So I think they'll be my primary focuses when he comes back, which I mean, now we're talking two weeks of timetables are to be believed. I really hope he gets at least a game in Oshkosh before that. I just think it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense not to take advantage of that, but we'll see how that one plays out. Jordan, that's it. That's it for this episode. We'll be back with you all in a few days with some more. Who knows what we'll have to talk about by then. Um, in the meantime, make sure you subscribe to Snapple Podcast, follow us on SoundCloud, add us on Stitcher, and favor us on TuneIn Radio. You can also read all of mine, Jordan, and the rest of the team's work at BehindTheBookPass.com. If you haven't already, you can also follow us on Twitter at WinIn6Podcast. And we will be back with you within a few days. Thanks again for listening. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you.